0: Um, As you know, we mentioned last week that we were gonna be starting a brand new series. And uh, that brand new series is entitled, um, Hope is Alive. So before we open God's word, I would just love to just spend some time in prayer for us and and also be in prayer for me uh, before we get engaged with uh, the text this morning. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you. We are deeply thankful to you. um, One, for breath in our lungs, for allowing us to see a new day, uh, for your mercies that are new every morning. And Lord God, we will rejoice and we'll be glad in exactly what you've given us. We also thank you, Lord God, for the time in history and the space that you've allowed us to, to exist and to be born. Uh, Lord God, you saw this from eternity past that we would be a people who would experience this global pandemic during a time where there was great technological capabilities and we thank you and praise you that even if Lord God the creators of this technology may not have had in mind a specific gospel application that you by your grace have given it that in your divine providence and so we thank you for being able to be this uh, to be together in this way and ask that you would bless our time Open our eyes that we would see your word in ways that we've not seen it before by your Holy Spirit. Open our ears that we would hear not just with physical ears, but with spiritual ears, as Jesus would often caution his audiences to do. And we pray, oh God, that you would enable me by your grace uh, to be move completely out of the way, oh God, and just simply be used of you to teach your word properly and effectively to your people, despite these virtual barriers that we have from being with uh, one another. This is our earnest request in the matchless and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, uh, church family, again, I am excited to open up our uh, new series entitled Hope is Alive. And uh, in this series, we're going to be following just the final moments of Jesus' life leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. And uh, as we do that, we hope to learn something about hope. Uh, And as we are learning about hope, what better place than to learn about hope than from the very person who is our hope. And that is hopefully the Lord Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is not your hope today, uh, it is our prayer that by faith you would move toward the Lord and come to know him in that very special way. Um, This series is going to begin in the book of John and specifically John chapter 18. Uh, John chapter 18 gives us about 40 verses that fully outline uh, a a moment or a time in Jesus's life when he is uh, just about to be arrested. He has been betrayed by Judas. And I'm going to read a few of those verses for us. And then I'm going to tell you the larger story so that we don't have to read 40 verses together. But I'll read the first 10 or so. And so you can see them there on your screen. So if you got your Bibles, John chapter 18, beginning with verse one, it says, when Jesus has spoken these words, He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, uh, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Then that was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of uh, of that, that all that was given to him, that he would not lose one. And in verse 10, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck off the ear of one of the high priest's servants and cut it off. And then the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Now, after this moment, the story continues where Jesus is not only betrayed by Judas, but then also arrested by the officials or those officers that were brought with him. Jesus, Jesus would then later be taken uh, to Annas and Caiaphas, and he would be questioned Question about the nature of his ministry. Why is it that your people don't want anything to do with you? They question him about the words that he taught and the messages that he spoke of uh, in, in public. And Jesus would respond to them very candidly, as he always would. And in that moment, one of the uh, leaders or one of the officers there actually struck Jesus on the face and asked him, why is he disrespecting uh, the priests and the leaders and the officers in that way? And then following that, Jesus would be handed off to another, and the, the, the Q&A would continue, as they would ask Jesus, why uh, are your people so against you? Are you a king, even? And Jesus would confirm, yes, you've said so, I am a king. And, and Jesus would say, well, what is it that you want to know about me? I spoke very openly and transparently in the, in the temples and, and in these different places. There's nothing that I have to hide. And so throughout the 40 verses, we see Jesus, there are six major movements that happens. Now, Jesus is then forwarded over to the people and and, and the the high priest then asked, well, who would you have us to give to you? Do you want Jesus or you want Barabbas? And the people chose Barabbas over Jesus. And so this this whole story of Jesus from his uh, betrayal over to his ultimate rejection from his own people can really be captured in six major milestones. And these six milestones, I'll give them to you right here. And they are as follows on the screen. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, arrested like a criminal, denied by Peter, disrespected by officers, misunderstood by leaders, and rejected by people. Now just kind of hold a look at those for a moment. You can remember the entire story of John chapter 18 if you can remember those six major high points, which essentially are Jesus was betrayed arrested, denied, disrespected, misunderstood, and rejected by the people. Now, through all of that, I wanna ask a question. How is Jesus able to live a life so perfectly amid all of this? Now, you've often heard us say in the gospel that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and that he died a death that we should have died. What do we mean by that? Well, he lived a life we should live because he lived perfectly, he lived without sin, he didn't do anything wrong. How is Jesus able, again, to live so perfectly amid such adversity? That's one question that we need to answer this morning. And the second question we need to answer is this. What do these perfections of Jesus look like when reflected in my own life? Now, the reason that we want to explore and answer these two questions in today's message is because in between those answers, I believe we will come away with one clear statement. And that is this. That real hope must be founded in the perfections of Christ and not the projections, or my own personal projections, of the good life. Uh, The reason that I say that is because hope is not exclusive to the church. Hope is not exclusive to the Christian. I want you to consider for a moment that hope is not a word that was invented by us. Everybody has the capacity to hope. Everybody has the capacity to dream and to desire and to want a life that is more than or better than the life that they currently have. All of us can hope for better times. All of us are probably hoping that uh, the uh, unemployment numbers will go down. All of us are probably hoping that um, uh, the markets will go back up. All of us are probably hoping that the schools will reopen. All of us are probably hoping that things will get back to normal. We all have our own various versions of what the ideal future looks like. And that is just the basic human capacity to hope. It's not an exclusive Christian enterprise. However, there is something that Jesus Christ does for the hope of the believer that is exclusive to the church and that we ought to know if we say that we are going to be people who place faith in him and that we have a hope that is alive. And so uh, a a hope, the kind of hope that Jesus Christ offers is much broader than just my personal projections or dreams of a much better future or some kind of paradise in the the here and now or even beyond the here and now. Real hope must be built on the perfections of Christ and not just my projections of the good life. Well, what does Jesus Christ give us in this story to help us to understand that? Before we get to that story, I believe that Peter says something very powerful to us that'll help us know where this whole story is going and how our hope is founded or should be founded in Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the kind of hope that we're interested in, one that is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not a generic hope, not just a human-based hope, not just a better future, but an ideal eternity and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this can only be offered by faith in Christ. Well, what does John chapter 18 say to us? What does John 18 teach us about this living hope that we have in Christ if we follow him, if we are in him? Well, we're going to walk through a few verses together. And in those those verses, we're going to unpack four perfections that we see modeled in the life of Christ during this season of adversity. And how those four perfections should actually translate to a more profound hope for us in this life right now and even beyond. So the first one, let's just go back to verse 4. When we go to verse 4, it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them when they came to arrest him, Whom do you seek? The thing that I want to capitalize on here is, you see it underlined, it's Jesus says, Then knowing all that would happen this basic capacity of Jesus to know all things. Jesus knows all things is our first perfection that we want to outline. If Jesus knows all things, this is commonly known as his omniscience, the fact that he knows everything. But how does that play into actual usable uh, conviction for us? I mean, is that just a static theological term to know that Jesus knows the, the past perfectly and also knows the future? Does it have any implications for the current life for me, or is it just a cool thing to know about the character of Christ? I believe that this perfection of Christ, that he knows all things, actually has implications for us. And here it is. One of them is the fact that I believe that Jesus knows my history perfectly, he knows my tendencies perfectly, and he also knows my adversities perfectly. Uh, John chapter 16 verse 30 says this, now we know that you know all things and that you do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you have come from God. There's another verse in the Bible that also underscores it. It doesn't overtly state it, but you should see this. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, the Bible says, And he, that is being Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we have Jesus Christ who stands outside of time, and it is by his word that all things hold together. That is our past and our future well now here's the deal if jesus is omniscient knowing all things past and all things future then that means everything that we need to know about the moment where the two collide where does the past and the future come together they come together in our present what we desperately need and how we need the omniscience of christ to be reflected in our life is wisdom daily wisdom in the moment and if jesus christ knows the past and the future, and my past, and my future, and he also knows the things that I'm weak at, and the things that I'm strong at, we should be able to appeal for Jesus, appeal to Jesus in the moment for perfect wisdom. This is how his omniscience is actually reflected as a benefit in our lives, because we now have access to perfect wisdom, perfect wisdom. Uh, The Bible tells us Uh, In James chapter one, verses five through nine, that if any of us lacks wisdom, that we can actually go to him and with faith and know that we would receive wisdom. So God has a promise that he wants to give us wisdom based on this great omniscient truth uh, or this perfection of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite movies from the 1990s is Rock. And there's this moment where Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage are having somewhat of a face-off. No pun intended because he was a face-off. But they're having this face-off. And uh, uh, Sean wants to know about the nature of this particular mission that they're getting ready to go on. And Nicolas screams at him and says, you are on a need-to-know basis. You know what? Believers, we too are on a need-to-know basis. We don't need to know everything that Jesus knows. All we need to know is how everything that he knows comes together in the one moment that we have to manage right now in the present. And that's called wisdom. And so I can be perfectly confident in this way. I can be confident in my walk with Christ because he is not surprised by the world around me or the weaknesses within me. I'll say that again. I can be confident in my walk with Christ because he is not surprised by the world around me or the weaknesses within me. There's nothing that I can bring to the table that Jesus has not already anticipated. But again, his omniscience isn't just a static knowing. His omniscience is actually leveraged for the loving benefit of his people. I can be confident in my walk with Christ because he understands the world around me and is not surprised by it. And he also understands the weaknesses that are within me. And that's where, again, James comes in where we have this great promise of wisdom over in James chapter one, verses five through nine. We'll read it together. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And he, he gives generously to those without reproach and it will be given to him. But if you ask, ask in faith, not doubting. So we have to fully depend and trust that the wisdom that we need will come from Christ. And if we go in and we kind of put our toe in the water, ask Christ, but then we take that situation back and decide to get wisdom on our own, that's faithlessness. We have to be fully dependent upon Christ if we want access to this wisdom that draws down from this perfection of his um, niches. The next perfection that I want us to see in Christ is found in verses 7 through 8. If you have your Bibles, um, look at them. or If you can look here on the screen, if you can see it. Verses seven through eight tell us that uh, in that same moment, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I told you that I am he. So if you do not seek me, let those men, if you seek them, then let the others that are with me go. And this was all part of this conversation that Jesus had with the father back in John chapter 17, where he promised when well, he said to the father, none of the people that you have given me, none of those who you have given to me have I lost. This is another perfection of Christ. The first perfection is that uh, Jesus knows all things. The second perfection is that Jesus will lose no thing. And that includes us. He will lose nothing. Those who are in him will not be lost. This is where the omnipotence and the benevolence of Jesus come together as a perfection. But how did those perfections of Jesus being omnipotent, having all power and being benevolent, being all good, come together for our good? How is that perfection of Jesus reflected in my life and helped me build a foundation of hope, a living hope? Here's how. Well, we all know that if Jesus is not going to lose any of those who, has been, who have been saved, this is a conversation about our eternal security. But our eternal security, which many people, you know, are already familiar with this idea as, well, you know, that's once save, always saved. And sometimes people say that sarcastically, but it's greater than that. It's bigger than that. You see, eternal security is designed to inform our hearts that we can live with courageous excellence and not ridiculous negligence. I'll say that again. Eternal security allows believers to live with courageous excellence in this life, regardless of circumstances, and not ridiculous negligence. Why do I say that? Imagine for a moment that your father was the founder and CEO of a massive corporation and you came in as one of the employees knowing that your father owned the company, you will be completely secure in your job, not believing that you could be fired for any reason. As an employee, you have two opportunities. You could operate in courageous excellence, serving others around you, and and promoting the name of the organization, and making your father look good when people find out that he's your father. Or you could live with ridiculous negligence, walking the halls, being a slacker, being one of the worst employees ever, and really dragging the name of your father and the organization through the mud. Does that sound familiar? So eternal security is a calling card for us to live with this kind of courageous excellence for the Lord, knowing that we are secure in him and no one can take that security from us. But there's more found in uh, this, this fact that Jesus holds on to us. It's not just courageous excellence or not just eternal security, it's also eternal affinity and eternal affinity. What is eternal affinity? Eternal affinity is an appetite for eternity that our heart desires eternal things. The work of the Holy Spirit in us is to constantly transform our hearts and our character and our appetites to where we desire that life with Christ more than we desire this life here on earth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, take a look with me. Uh, Paul says these words, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, the work of Jesus Christ includes this life, but this is not the only life in which we are designed to have hope. The Lord Jesus Christ wants us to have hope in this life, but not this life only, in the life beyond this one. And that's the great work of the Holy Spirit given to those who place faith in Christ is our hope is not just for a better life now, but for the ultimate life that we should have then. Uh, I would express it this way as a closing point. I can be an eternal optimist in this life because Christ, uh, because the temporary issues of this life are designed to increase my longing for that life. You'll see it here on the screen in just a moment. There we go. I can be an eternal optimist in Christ because the temporary issues of this life are designed to increase my longing for that life. In other words, in this life, as we encounter difficulty, we can all be optimists. Not happy-go-lucky, not haphazard, not people with their hands in the sand who, who don't know what's going on and that the times that we're living in right now are risky and dangerous. But we can be a people who, while in this life, we have a hope that in Christ, that these things that we currently encounter are nothing in comparison to what we have stored up for us. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of Scripture that help us to develop this eternal affinity. Uh, Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter five, verses one and two: For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. Uh, but we have a home in the eternal heavens. And for this tent, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. The sufferings of this life make us groan, but not just groan about the current conditions but to hopefully groan for life with Christ beyond this life. And so, again, the first perfection is Jesus knows all things. The second perfection of Jesus that shaped our hope is that Jesus will lose no thing, and that includes us. But there's a third perfection that we find in verse 11. If you've got your Bibles, look back there or just look on the screen. So further when question, Jesus told, tells Peter, so Jesus says to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. And shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In other words, Jesus is fully committed to following through on the trajectory that God has placed his life on, even if that trajectory includes all of these different phases of adversity that we've talked about already, and this ultimate moment of adversity, which is the sacrifice of his own life. But Jesus Christ is fully committed to the will of the Father above all things. And that's the third perfection of Christ. He is totally and completely faithful. Well, how does the faithfulness of Christ, which we can all adore, translate to any type of usable thing for me? How does that reflect it in my life? It should be reflected in two ways. It should be both comforting and it should be compelling. It should be comforting in this regard. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, the Bible says, I am confident of this one thing, confident of this one thing. That the work that Jesus has begun in you, he is faithful to complete it. I should be comforted by that. Though no matter how much of a rough product I am, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to finish what he started. Isn't that an awesome thing that brings you great hope? That you are an incomplete work right now, but the Lord is committed to complete it. It's not dependent on you with your procrastination around your Bible reading plan. It's not dependent upon you because you're like, man, I haven't read my Bible nearly as much during this uh, during this season of quarantine as I wanted to. And you should. You should step up and do those things. But isn't it awesome to know that someone who is fully faithful, more faithful than we've ever been in our entire lives, who's fully committed to the will of the Father, is also committed to completing a work in you. So we should be comforted by the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is committed to completing what he started in us. But there's something else that we should also note is that this should also be compelling. The reason that it should be compelling for us is because of a conversation that Jesus had in Luke chapter 9 verses, 50, uh, verses 58 through 62. You won't have this one on the screen, but I'll tell you the story. In Luke chapter 9 verses 50, uh, 58 through 62 Uh, Several people, three people in particular, approached Jesus on a journey and sought to follow him. And Jesus said, you want to follow me? Come on. But I'll tell you something. The son of man, well, he says, first of all, the son of man has not a place to lay his hand, even though foxes have holes and birds have nests. Are you sure you want to sign up for that? A third person approached Jesus and said, Jesus, I'll follow you. But let me first go back and bid my family farewell. And Jesus said, no, no man said who sets his hand to the plow is fit for the kingdom. A third person came to Jesus and asked if he would follow him. He says, well, first let me go back and bury my father. And Jesus says, no, you come with me and let the dead bury the dead. In that moment, Jesus Christ disclosed for us, if you'll read that passage carefully, what I consider to be the three costs of discipleship. And that is sacrificial living, sanctified loyalties, what am I committed to, and also single-minded labor. Am I prepared to do, to focus exclusively on the thing that God called me to do? And if you're prepared to pay those costs, you'll see exponential one, hope in your life because you are narrowly focused just like the Lord Jesus Christ was narrowly focused on the Father's will above all things. So faithfulness can be reflected in our life even if it's not perfected in our lives. Jesus perfected faithfulness, but his faithfulness compels us and it also comforts us. Uh, when we talk about this uh, idea of Jesus' perfection as, and being faithful, here's kind of the, 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 the major idea that I would drive home. It's I can pay the cost of discipleship because Jesus Christ has already paid the price for my sin and my redemption and my relationship. Right? I can confidently pay the cost of discipleship. I can live sacrificially. I can have single minded labor. I can have sanctified loyalties and I can do that with great confidence because of the power that is within me. From Jesus Christ because he first and foremost is faithful and has given me his Holy Spirit to live out that faithfulness and to live and want and to be transformed into his image and likeness. And so I can pay the cost of discipleship because Jesus has already paid the cost for my relationship. He paid the cost for my sin. The fourth and final perfection that I want to point to in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is brought to us in verse 20 when Jesus was uh, questioned repeatedly. And answer these questions, Jesus answered them and said, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews were come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? And as you have not heard what I've said to them, and they all knew what he said, Jesus Christ could not be found guilty of anything. The innocence of Jesus isn't just a perk. It isn't just a note on his resume. It's one of his perfections, but it also has a reflection in us. You see, the the impeccability of Christ, that's what we call it, the innocence of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ allows him to also confer impeccability or righteousness to us. The righteousness of Christ isn't something that he could give if he himself wasn't righteous. Some years ago, I remember as a late teenager, I was working for a particular company who will remain remain nameless. I was given an opportunity to go on a, a missions trip during the summer. And uh, when I went to the, my employer to request a leave of absence during this during this summer, uh, the guy said, uh, sure, of course you could go, and uh, just come back and see us when you get back. And so I did that. I went on my summer missions project, and when I came back, the person that had given me this leave of absence was nowhere to be found. And so I went to his boss, and I said, hey, I'm ready to start work. And he says, man, we don't even know who you are. And I began to describe the conversation that I had where I was given permission. I was given this authority that this previous supervisor had conferred this opportunity on me that I could go, and then I was told that that individual was not authorized to let me go, that I had asked the wrong person. Why do I share this? In other words, I, the person who had given me the opportunity to go didn't have the authority to do so, and therefore I didn't have right standing with the company when I came back. For many of us, who's giving us permission to do the things that we do in this life? Do we have right standing before God? And that's what it means to have right standing, that Jesus Christ has conferred upon us a status that only he has. He physically and spiritually, socially, he was totally righteous and he confers righteousness to us. He has right standing. And therefore, he has the authority to give us right standing. No one else can. We can't give it to ourselves. Essentially what I did was because I went to the wrong person asking for uh, this leave of absence and they didn't have the authority to give it to me, I was standing on my own merits when I came back to argue with the company as to why they should give me my job back because I had been gone for three months and I didn't have a leg to stand on. And for us, if we believe that we could stand before God on our own two feet, on our own righteousness, we will find out that we don't have a leg to stand on. Because we ourselves have sinned and therefore we don't have a righteousness to offer. It is only Jesus Christ when we place faith in him who can confer or who can give us that status and give us that righteousness. And so I can be assured of righteousness or right standing before God because of Christ's guiltlessness. I can be assured of this because of Christ's own guiltlessness. Look at this final verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. Uh, and 31, it says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us, mark these very carefully, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let him who boast boast in the Lord. I want you to take note of those four things that I have underlined here. Notice that the Bible tells us that Christ doesn't just distribute righteousness, sanctification, redemption and wisdom that he is those things. Now, do you understand why we say hope is alive? Our hope is a living hope. The Jesus Christ is the personification of God's wisdom, righteousness and redemption. Now, when we go back and we look over uh, the previous points of the message and we say uh, on this next slide, and we say, here are the perfections of Christ. He knows all things. He loses nothing. He is faithful in everything, and he is not guilty of anything. These aren't just Jesus's moral stats. They have real impact on our hope if we are in Him. Jesus Christ, in the knowledge that He has, becomes our He becomes our wisdom. Jesus Christ, in the righteousness that He has, He becomes our righteousness. Jesus Christ. In his commitment to place the will of the Father above everything, he becomes our sanctification so that we begin to live like that as well. Jesus Christ is our redemption. He isn't just a provider of eternal security. He is our redemption. It is all found in him. So what do we mean when we say that hope is alive? What we mean is that our hope is a living hope. It is actually in the person of Jesus Christ. So we're not placing faith in concepts and ideas. Our real faith is in a person, not just in a dogma. So, uh, Gospel Hope Church, this is the close of our message today. Uh, I want to just pray for us briefly, and then I want to open us up for a few questions. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we're thankful to you this morning uh, for walking us through the scriptures in this way and allowing us to see the great perfections of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we beg and ask that you would indeed allow us um, to experience these perfections reflected in our own character and faith and building uh, uh, hope on a solid rock that we should stand, and that's Christ alone and not anything else, which would obviously be sinking sand.